So I'm very pleased that this week my guest is somebody I've been trying to interview for quite a long time. Um, BHA Chief Executive Julie Harrington, thank you so much for giving us your time this week. No problem at all, looking forward to chatting. Absolutely, as am I. I've got to start in only one place um, and I'm sure you know it's coming. Why did you vote against a reduction in the race programme last week? So, um, my view is that um, constantly racing is looking at what are we going to do for Nick fixtures next year? What are we going to do for fixtures next year? Um, and every year we go through a fixtures process. Um, this year, in conjunction with the fixtures process, we've also been looking at the governance and the decision making of the sport and also um, in recent weeks announced that we've reached a point in that process where we're confident in saying we're going to work together for a longer term strategy for the sport um, and that the BHA should be central to leading and coordinating that work and to push on with a, with a short term one year view when we're on the cusp of um, working together for a longer term more strategic approach which actually might mean that we need bigger cuts or fewer cuts or you know it, it's really about trying to make sure that what we're doing is strategic. Um, I think if we weren't as far along in the work that we've been doing on industry strategy um, we would have probably been in a position where you'd say well just let next year's programme go and we'll make this tactical intervention because you know we, we feel it's the right thing to do but we we've made such progress in the last few months I think just pausing we have got until October when um, program but one for the first four months of the year it is going to be published and I just think that we've got to give that strategy work the best possible chance of success. Um, do you envisage that we might have less fixtures because of this um, strategical sort of pullback or about the same or could you even see more? I think I'm going into it with a completely open mind. I think what's incredibly important to get to the answer to that question is that people are sharing their data. So betting providers, media rights, horse population, um, nobody can make the best decision if they're only looking at it through one lens. Um, and lots of different people's business models would say, well actually we would like solution X, we would like solution Y. Um, and so I think it's going to need people to share their data but also to park some of their short-term interests in favour of a longer-term view for the sport. Um, a lot of people have pushed back um, quite hard about that and you might say that they won't see necessarily the strategic um, reasons for it but do you feel like you've lost a lot of people's confidence over this particular decision and if so do you think you can get them back on board? So I think one of the things I love about racing is that people are passionate um, and, and of course people have strong views um, and one of the challenges in working in a national governing body in any sport is your decisions aren't going to be popular all the time. Um, I can look at all of our participants in the eye and, and say that I, um, you know, personally, mm. my decision was to pause the process for the right reasons. 
um, and hopefully we'll, we'll continue to keep talking. Um, as I say, keep sharing um, the information. Um, but one of the challenges in, in leadership in sport is um, your decisions um, aren't always going to please everybody. Mm. Uh, speaking about that, um, there are an awful lot of interests in British racing, as uh, you've just remarked upon. Um, if you had the chance to sort of go again and start tomorrow, um, would which organisations or whatever would you sort of invent and which ones would you say, okay, maybe less of this? Um, and where do you think the power ought to lay? Because some people might say the current system doesn't work and there are too many. Um, in Julie Harrington's ideal world, um, who's doing what for British racing? So we are an incredibly fragmented sport. Mm. Um, you know, other racing jurisdictions have uh, fewer moving parts, if you like. Um, and the upside for us is that you would say we have a huge amount of heritage um, that has got us to this point. Um, and a lot of our assets, um, in terms of whether that's listed races, whether that's amazing venues, um, you know, have been centuries in the making, not mm -hmm. just decades. And that is, that is a huge asset for British racing. However, um, the, the fragmented nature, the fact that you've got race courses, you've got um, different members of the thoroughbred group in terms of that decision making, um, we need to be able to hear everybody's voice. But I also strongly believe that the national governing body needs to be empowered um, to make decisions for the sport. I don't think, speaking hypothetically, sort of. Imagining that you had a management takeover of racing and you get your red pen out and, and which bits you'd cross out um, is going to be particularly helpful because uh, we aren't starting from scratch and people's business, you know, people have shareholders, people have invested tens of millions of pounds in businesses um, and so you can't just go with your red pen and say we need, we need less of this or more of this. However, what I think we can do is look for obvious areas of duplication um, and talk about how we might eliminate some of that um, duplication. Um, look for areas where we can say, well, actually, this body is the best body to lead on subject X. That's the sort of work that we've been doing for the last couple of years on, for example, horse welfare, where rather than um, reinvent the wheel we have um, retraining of racehorses so actually saying well they are the body that we'd like to work with to enhance their brief to look after the whole of aftercare for example um, and and you know that we've we need to just make sure we've got the right people doing the right things and it's a bit more coordinated um, moving back just to racing in a sort of more racing issue but um a lot of British horses have left, particularly on the flat, um, well, mainly on the flat, to go racing overseas, um, chasing bigger prize money um, elsewhere. Does it worry you? Do these numbers worry you? Because they've been on a steady uptick and it doesn't seem to be changing. Yes, it does. And, and I think um, it's been a big operation to actually, first of all, make sure that we're, we're looking at one version of the truth in terms of that data. Because to a certain extent, um, for our breeding industry, exporting horses has got to be part of a good thing for you know a, a, 
part of your business model. And indeed other jurisdictions, for example Ireland, um, part of their government funded is linked to them having high exports. For us, what, one, of, one of the things that we've been really looking at in the data is when it's constantly looking as if your better horses are going overseas. Um, you know, because what we want, all of our fans, mm. whether whether they're people who bet on racing, watch on TV, go to the race courses, we want them to be able to see the best horses in the best races. You know, we are a sport; it's a meritocracy, and and of course you'll need year-round racing and betting interest. But those pinnacles through the year are, are the foundations that the sport is built on, and to have um, an increasing number of your better horses being exported of course is worrying the challenge is what do you do about that um, when you're not comparing apples with apples in terms of the way that British racing is funded to other jurisdictions where you have monopoly you know like tote monopoly positions um, and so it is that's why we need that 10 year or more strategy to say we if we are going to stem this decline, if we are going to have our biggest races competing on that global prize money level, then we need to do something differently. What do you think the thing that needs to be done differently is? So uh, what you will always find is, is people arguing over how prize money or revenues are distributed in racing. Um, and what we've got is, is a finite pot of money. So what we really need to concentrate on is how do we collectively grow that? Um, and understanding that the top of end of our sport is, is one of the pillars that that is built on, um, but also you know, great breeding, the, the British bred thoroughbred being in demand, our stallions, um, but also the fact that we've got you know, one of the things I love about racing in this country is it isn't homogenous. You know, you've got such a variety of venues. You know, obviously we've got jump racing and hurdling, and and you know that adds to that variety. And so I I, I think embracing um, the everyday racing. You know, I, I spend a lot of time going racing myself, and it doesn't mean I'm always going to the big festivals. I absolutely love. Um, you know, go, going to um, Cartmel on a um, bank holiday weekend, which isn't one of your big TV slots necessarily. So um, I, I think there is a place for um, everything, but we just need to understand, you know, what are those big products that we need to collectively push. Um, I think, again, the big product stuff is a fair point, but just on the price money point just again to labour it, um, some people might say that too much money um, is going into say for example the big festivals like the Ebor and Royal Ascot, the top level flat racing and also at jumping level it's even worse where you know you get your big festivals at Christmas, uh, then you get them in the spring and there's very little to go around elsewhere. Um, do you think there might be a way of combating that imbalance possibly? Um, because many owners are saying, well, we can't make this pay anymore. So what, what you're talking about, some of those big festival fixtures, you also get criticism that those peak fixtures aren't competing internationally. So, you know, you, you mentioned um, the Ebor, you mentioned Royal Ascot, Cheltenham. 
Um, we need to make sure that those pinnacle meetings remain internationally competitive. But you're right that we also need to make sure that every area of the fixture list, whatever rating your horse is, that there are opportunities for it to run and race. But whilst we're constantly looking at how do we spread the spread the prize money thinly, um, it will always be a challenge, which is why um, you know I've been advocating a, a longer term, more strategic view of the size and shape of the fixture list. Does that include a sort of different offer to government when it comes to the, the levy, a sort of different proposal um, to reform the levy? So that could be, you know, as you know, the, the current levy, um, the, the government had said that 2024 will be the sort of backstop for when they um, next look at the levy. We've been asking them to, um, particularly in the face of the pandemic, to look earlier than that um, because we just think... Um, the amount of um, revenue that is now online versus in shops that we need to make sure that the levy is fit for a digital age um, and, and you're right that could form part of um, a solution but I don't think it will be all of it. Um, and just going on uh, because you said something really interesting about where you go racing and I do think um, it's important to raise. The race day experience has been raised a lot recently um, with sort of varying degrees of success. Some people are, course, uh, lots of people are having a fantastic time, others not so good on a variety of levels, whether it be they feel very high concession prices and whether it be high entry fees, whether it be sort of race courses um, that are too packed or whatever. Um, and I was interested to know, first of all, apart from Carmel, as you've said, <laughs> which courses do you think um, do racing really well in this country? And also, where do you think, um, not naming anywhere in particular, the race day experience can be improved? So uh, the, the, the race day experience is essential. Uh, and I think all of our colleagues at race courses know that. And I would say, you know, historically, I, I spent 10 years working um, mm -hmm. in race courses. So I know that people aren't resting on their laurels. Um, and I know that um, investment in those sort of front of house consumer offerings is, is come on leaps and bounds. Um, personally, I, uh, as you would expect in this role, I spend a lot of time on, on race courses, and I'm not going to I'm not going to single out um, anybody good and good or bad. I think the ones who put on a great race day experience, it's not always about luxury. You know, it's not always, it, it's actually about great customer service, mm. being able to get a drink at the bar, not feeling as if you're being ripped off, um, that you're being served by staff who are well-trained, um, and they're the little things, um, you know, and often it isn't that top-end experience, it might just be that you've happened to go and get a really good pork bat somewhere and, and had a conversation with the people who are looking after you and you feel as if it's good value for money. Um, I think um, there's been quite a lot re re written recently about not just the experience from a sort of food, beverage, leisure point of view, we're a sport and the, the experience of watching the sport and, and I do feel um, providing a big screen so that people can can watch the race, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, particularly with, with courses that um, 
you know, maybe have a, a challenging run-in or something to, to get the idea of the placings. I know myself as a punter, I like I, I like being able to see where my horse is. Um, yeah. It's the charge of the light brigade on the way in. Um, and so um, I, I do think that's an essential part of, of the race day experience. Um, and I know that particularly for some smaller courses, um, you know, you, you're racing a finite number of days in the year and meeting that investment is challenging. But I think it's it's a really important area for people to enjoy the best of a, an afternoon of sport. Um, there are plenty of race days which are premium products. Um, there are also plenty of race days which I think are targeted at people who, who might be going for more of a, a casual day out. Um, with the cost of living crisis really biting at the moment, and also unfortunately sectors get much worse at the beginning of the jumping season, are there any measures that the BHA has or is there any thinking that you guys have got in terms of strategic reviews um, to sort of help reduce the cost of racing? Because many people are already saying it's um, too expensive just to get through the gate and that's before all the other costs are passed on. Um, you know, it, food's more expensive, drinks more expensive and at the end of the day you go and you park and you've done a tonne 50 and what else can you do? So, I mean, that is outside. That, that would be a bit of an overreach of our powers, if you like, mm -hmm. because we don't we don't set ticket prices. We don't have um, have those powers. But one of the one of the functions of the RCA, the Racecourse Association, is you know it's not just about you know collective bargaining away from the racecourses. It's about them having all of those minds able to work together to work out what's best practice what's working for some race courses that others can copy. And I think innovation around making it more affordable is certainly on the agenda. So I, I meet colleagues from both the race courses and the thoroughbred group regularly. Um, and certainly the, um, you know, the, the cost of living and looking at customers' ability to um, you know, still come racing is, is really high up their agenda. It's a very good place to end part one. Thank you very much for your time. Julie Harrington. No problem. So back with Julie Harrington, BHA Chief Exec, um, just continuing on some of the issues we discussed and I wanted to ask you, um, what's your overall vision for British racing going forward and are there any problems in particular that you're really keen to tackle? So I think number one, um, having a long-term vision is important because um, we need that North Star to aim for. Um, and I think trying to get um, everybody in the industry um, united behind um, the right size and shape of, of the fixture list is a really important one because it can be the cause of our most regular divisions and we need to speak with a single voice particularly to government we need to be attracting the future racing fan um, and um, and making sure you know it's our big shop window and making sure that we're mindfully looking at the fixture list um, on a longer term basis. We have a, a team of really talented people here who know 
um, race planning, the fixture list inside out. And every year it's like putting together a 3D jigsaw puzzle. Um, and it, you know, it can be um, quite divisive in terms of um, you know, who makes the decisions on, on different parts of the fixture list. And if we can try and get a longer term view um, that puts the customer, um, the, the betting customer, the, the watching customer, those people who own horses and want to give them opportunities to race at, at the heart of it, um, then, then I think that's a, a really important area for me. Two things I want to zero in on. Um, I keep pressing on the fix list, but it is so important. <laughs> <laughs> Just in general, actually, going to ask you a question. Do you think we have too much racing in Britain on whole? So that is a hypothesis, isn't it? You know, right. you, you asked uh, um, me, me questions earlier on <laughs> about next year, mm. um, and a regular hypothesis you get from people is too much racing. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as keep the same amount of prize money, have less racing, and share it out, um, and each race will will go up by a factor. It just doesn't work like that because it's actually the volume of races that are run that generates more revenues through the levy, through media rights, and then that is um, you know, shared out. So less races in the short term will mean less revenues to go, to go round. And so, so you actually have to have a more sophisticated hypothesis. That it, it, have we got too much of a certain type of racing? Um, have we got um, uh, you know, the right racing for not just our current horse population because you know it, breeding is obviously a, a longer term return on investment but you will you can see that over time the number of horses bred at a certain um, you know quality of horse is is will fit the fixture list so um, so I think um, just too much racing um, is a bit of a sort of blunt argument and I think we need to get a, a little bit more sort of nuanced in the questions we're asking ourselves. Okay, um, just on that, because there was something interesting you said there, but um, in the short term there'd be a decrease in revenue to go around. Um, do you think a scenario in which some short term pain might lead to some long term gain um, if things go balanced out a bit, but is there, is that feasible? I think it is, but I think it is going to um, need more people to share, particularly race courses, to share some of the revenues generated, sh to share the data on that, so that you can actually look at, by, ha by protecting you know, a really compelling product, mm. um, that you can show that over a period of time it will protect those, protect and grow those other income streams. Um, and you know there are elements of that that we we need to um, share that data and to, to help do the most rounded piece of work that we can. Okay. Um, something else uh, that you also mentioned earlier, which I've been hoping to touch on anyway, um, bringing the future fan through. Um, so, what do you think are good ways to get more young people racing? Um, and more young people as fans of the sport. So you're asking a 50-year-old woman here. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, look, I know um, there's, there's been 
quite a lot of success in things like student racing um, groups. I think what's really important, and you know, I watched a presentation um, from some some younger people um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, as part of the European and Mediterranean Horse Racing Federations, where we're all coming together to mm. to ask just these challenging questions. What's really important is it's not just seen as a booze up, mm. um, but actually you also help people coming through connect to, you know, whatever might be. If there's a group of a hundred and ten of them, just connect to whether it's the horse, whether it's they enjoy. Um, you know the puzzle of of trying to find the winner, um, and they will be um, the people who will stay with the sport, um, rather than it just being a, a, about a, a sort of boozy day out. And I think it's really important that whenever we have um, those types of activities, that we try and get mm. that customer that. You know, even if you're inviting them in for free, you're you know you you're really giving them a great day yeah. out. Try and get them as close to the horse as possible because you know that, <laughs> that's what we that's what we all love. Try and get them as close to the sport. If it's a jump race or a hurdle race, get them down to the last fence. Try and get them as close to the finishing line or the paddock. And I think, you know, it, it's exciting. And and I think we need to. Um, portray that. I also think working with broadcasters um, is really important to make sure that the way our sport is presented on screen um, is in line with the, the way younger people consume media. Um, and, you know, I said you're asking a question of a 50 year old woman, you, you go, well, the production team in a lot of our broadcasters are having to sort of ask those questions themselves as well for very experienced people who've been in the industry a long time but how do we present the sport the way that mm. you know my grandkids want to watch it who, mm. who've never watched TV you know they're, they're just constantly um, looking at um, media or events through their devices which um, uh, and in short clips as well yeah. so so um, you know, I, I think it's a big challenge for all of us. But at least you know, I think racing, to be honest, does um, present itself in that way, uh, whereas other sort of longer format sports maybe don't. Um, you said something about free admissions and um, again going on ticket prices. But do you think that it might be it might be a wise strategy to push? Reduce heavily reduced or free admissions more, especially for weekday fixtures, etc., uh, in the hope of getting um, better takings from, you know, people buying concessions and and also boosting the on-course bookmaking industry because people have more money to bet with when they're there. Stuff like that. Look, as I said earlier, that's a bit of a sort of overreach for the BHA. That's really um, a matter for for the race courses. But I've been a marketeer for mm. most of my professional career, where it's just good business sense to, you know, to have lost leaders when you need to have lost leaders to encourage people mm -hmm. to try your product, but to also then spend money on, on yeah. other things while they're there, to um, get those people to introduce other people to you. you know, so it, it, they're all the sort of classic tricks, that, not, not tricks, but they're classic ways that marketeers would um, grow a business. You know, it, all of our lives, whether we're in the supermarket or we're going to the pub, 
we know the sorts of things that that will tend to work to get us to try something new um, and to keep our loyalty. Just moving on to a different area of um, racing, uh, but this has been an issue which has been growing for quite a while. Um, course management um, and particularly also the state of ground. Now we've had some unfortunate incidents recently um, where racing has to be abandoned because of horses sleeping on bends, etc. And, and there are a growing number of people who say that um, there's too much watering, um, you know, and, and that this leads to bigger risk when you get sudden rainfall. Um, how closely is the BHA watching this and um, are there any signs that you might call for a, a bit of a change in strategy? So we have a team of course inspectors. Those course inspectors work really closely with the race courses as you can imagine on ground. And I've been in racing for a long time and periodically you do hear lots of people saying, oh, too much watering, too little watering, you know. Um, and um, I think the, the recent incidents that you're talking about, one of the first things for the course inspectors team was to look at, is there a common denominator? You know, so because that what you know over a four or five day period, that was quite um, a lot of coincidence. Mm. Wasn't Did it? they find the common denominator? No, and I think uh, you know they're, they're doing more of a report on it. But um, I guess the common denominator, and um, you know, some of, some of your um, customers with longer memories, um, often in spring, it's been an, an issue where you'll get horses slipping. Um, you'll, you know, early part of the growing season, you'll get a temperature change and a, a sort of sudden growth of fresh, lush grass. Um, and as you say, with either water or a bit of rainfall on it, um, um, you, you would often get slippage. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the racecourse inspectors will be looking at, um, you know, in some instances it may be that um, the construction of a bend um, may have been too tight. Or, but you know that's really for the race course inspectors and the race courses to work out. But ruling out that there isn't just something more at play here, or establishing if there was something more at play here was was their sort of first brief. Mm. And you know the initial findings are it's just really you know a weird coincidence that you have four in four days or five days. Just on that, um, when can we expect a sort of finished report, will it be pushed out um, via the press releases that you guys do on Twitter and such? I can't imagine that it's going to be, you know, a, a, a big, a big report. But, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but um, we'll, we'll get, presumably, a few pages or so looking into the, yeah. into the findings. Okay, any, any ETA on that or...? I mean, really, it's going to be for the, the race course inspectors to work through um, with the race courses, mm. as you'd expect. So they're, mm. they're obviously going into a, a busy racing period at the moment. But if their initial findings had been there's something more at play here, I think you know you you would be throwing more resources mm. at trying to get to the bottom of that. But I think it's it's more about um, as I said earlier, just just making sure that good practice is going on in, in all of those areas. Um, a couple more things on the ground situation. Um, going stick readings that were considered to be good years ago can now have seemed to vary. They can be good to firm, and we've seen some changes. And I was just wondering, and maybe this is sort of a more personal question, but um, do you think, generally speaking, that we've got it in the right place with this? That 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 
crafts of the course aren't leading too far one way or the other, that we're not sort of moving away from the ideal for good to firm ground, say, on, on the flat? Look, I, I would say that, um, you know, I'm, what, just over a year into the role now. Um, it hasn't been a major focus for me, so I haven't really um, spent a huge amount of time going into this. From my previous days in race course management, I probably mm. um, know when the going stick first came in. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I, I do know um, that agronomy you know, is not an exact science. That the, the ground is living, breathing thing. And, uh, and you know, it, you can't, it's part sort of part science, part art. Mm. Um, and so I think whatever technology we put in play, we have to acknowledge that, um, that you will get variations in the ground. Um, I had a period of time away from racing working in, in football um, and where the field of play is far more finite and that the UEFA um, sort of agronomy checks um, were um, you know, far more scientific for a much smaller field of play and it was still a massive um, you know, cause of debate and then the weather would suddenly change and what should have been a 10 metre ball roll only ended up as a 6 metre ball roll and, you know, well, so I, I think um, you know, working with the clerks with the technology continuing to improve the technology um, I'm sure is the way forward but I have to caveat that with, with saying that it's not been a massive focus in my first sort of 12 months in office um, obviously joining at the tail end of the pandemic it's been um, it's really about just trying to make sure that all of our revenue revenue flows are, uh, are getting back to normal even though you know it's likely we're um, going straight into um, as you said earlier um, a recession if not something approaching a recession um. I'm circling back on this, but uh, and I know it's, you're going to say, "Oh God, this again." But one last thing on fixture lists: um, Do you think that going forward there might be a reduction, um, not necessarily a scrapping, but a reduction in the amount of summer jumping that we have and the amount of weather race that we have? I say this if only because small fields have been noticed a lot for summer jumping, um, and usually small fields. People bring it up in the flat in summer. There's been some, lots of summer jumping, small fields there, and also a lot of people do gripe about the amount of all-weather racing they see on their screens. Admittedly, we've got to have something for everybody. Um, but do you think possibly that going forward there might be a rebalancing? So I, I, um, I'm not saying, oh God, here we go again, because. I'm not surprised at the amount of questions you've asked in this area because it's really important. As I said before, it's our shop window um, and it's the way we present our product to the racing and betting public um, and having a, a really deep look at, at the types of racing and the volume and the horse population and all those things, including the, the, the revenue that that um, provide to the sport, whether that's through betting revenue or media rights revenue um, or gate revenue, um, then I think that's really important. Um, and 
you know, I, I'm not sure whether it was a bit of a loaded question. Do you think that we've got too much uh, of those two particular <laughs> not, types not for of me to say. But you know, if you are following the smaller field sizes, then mm. that's they will obviously be the areas that you need to have a good look at because you need to get under the skin of of why are we having those smaller field sizes? Is it the ground? Is it you know? We've had much fewer abandonments from a jumping point of view um, this year than than in previous years. Um, whereas with with a big abandonment year, the horses are condensed into um, fewer races, obviously. Um, so I, I think you're right in terms of following the data and the team here. Um, you know, in terms of the data that is available to them, which, it, which tends not to be the sort of raw commercial mm. data um, on horse population and the, you know, at the different um, types of horse, different grades of horse, different types of races, um, they're all, they've already modelled a huge amount of that through. Um, just to end this part, um, but we've talked a lot about various issues in British racing and also things that are done well and people put a lot of time and energy into that. When you look overseas, is there anything in particular that you think British racing could take um, from other jurisdictions? And if so, what? Betting monopoly. <laughs> now, I mean, you look at, you look at the... the um, Jurisdictions who um, are, are clearly, um, you know, out competing us in terms of um, prize money. Um, they they tend to be a more um, you know, a less fragmented market with more control of um, all of the income that's coming into the sport. Um, clearly, that ship sailed in this country um, decades ago, um, but. Uh, looking at how do we work with government to make sure that we we don't fall further behind because we can't do that on our own. And last but not least, um, the gambling review. Uh, there's been quite a bit of concern that the level that a minimum stake is set at could have a massive impact on the sport. So two questions in one to end. Firstly, um, do you worry about the increasingly negative perception of betting? Um, outside of sports and in some cases even inside sports given racing's inherent links to it and number two um, is there anything that would particularly worry you as an outcome from the gambling review? So of course I worry about the negative perception of betting. I, I am a betting fan. Um, I It's part of my leisure repertoire. I, I can't bet on horse racing while I'm doing this job um, but I certainly have a lot in the past, <laughs> um, and um, and I I think it it's an enjoyable and responsible um, use of my leisure money. Mm. Um, I think it's incumbent on all of us, whether whether we're betting operators or the BHA, to make sure that we're doing what we can to promote. Um, I don't like the term responsible gambling, but that that we well, are. What, what would you call it? It's difficult. They really have put me on the spot there. Uh, but basically, we're doing all we can to to ensure that we're protecting those people at risk of, of problem gambling. So, whether that's on our race courses, whether that's through um, you know voluntary codes of practice, um, without the need for um, 
you know, sort of government intervention. Um, and I think I'd be naive not to not to be worried about elements of of the Gambling Act review, um, and you know, making sure that we are in really good and deep, detailed conversations with government about any unintended consequences um, has been a real priority for me in the first 12 months in role. Um, because what, what you don't want is them to put something in there for, you know, which might be a vote-pleasing um, mm. um, tactic or, or, or policy and them not be aware of you know, a, a massive impact that it could have on a sport that has got such a symbiotic relationship with the betting industry. Mm. Well, thank you very much um, and look forward to part three with you, Julie Harrington. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, in part three, I want to just find out a bit more about Julie Harrington. Okay. Um, because <laughs> Julie Harrington's held a lot of high-profile marketeering and sports jobs, including positions at the FA and British Cycling. Um, I must ask, actually, did you ever... Um, did you ever think, mm, I've got these really high powerful jobs, why would I go back to racing where everything is sort of very fragmented and very argumentative and an extremely difficult challenge? So um, I, I got a phone call um, after um, Nick Rust um, handed his notice in to see if I, would, if I would be interested in coming back. And I, I have to be honest and say that you know, the fragmented nature of the sport did make me think twice. Um, but not for very long because, um, you know, I, I mentioned when we were chatting earlier about one of the ways you can get young people interested is getting them close to the sport and close to the horse. And in my time away from racing, um, to, you know, my most recent job was at British Cycling, it, it's difficult to get that level of emotion about a bike, you know, and and so... So oh. I didn't have to think long and hard to come back because I want to be part of trying to get the sport that I love functioning in a more efficient way. Um, so just going back to that, because that was really interesting about the bike, you surely get that amount of emotion about all the recent stories in British cycling um, and the incredible success it's had. Um, and I just wanted to ask you actually going on from that, what do you think, um, having been in British cycling, having been in football, which is the most popular sport in the world, what do you think racing can take from their governance and also the way they approach selling their sport? So I, I think the governance point is a good one. The um, trying to ensure that you've got um, a single point of decision making for the long term health of the sport because I don't think any of the um, you know the, the long term view of um, how do you make Britain a, a country to be re reckoned with in terms of that Olympic sport mm. no, it certainly didn't happen overnight um, it was a long term view and it took long term investment um, and I, you know I, I was privilege to sort of be part of that for, for four years but it, it's more of the it's bigger than any one individual you're just part of 
um, the, the sort of DNA of the sport and a custodian of it while you're while you're working there. Um, clearly, from a football point of view, you're right. It is globally the the most um, popular sport, and um, there are loads of interesting ways that you could look at how the sport presents itself, how it segments. You know, in this country and globally, the Champions League makes it really. You know, I, I've got grandchildren. Um, when they were really young, they instantly knew that that must mean that it's the best. You know, and and it gets them really interested. Um, and and I know that we in racing have tried to present certainly in things like Champion British Champion Series um, and and Kitco Champions Day. Um, trying to um, look at how we might present it, the, the sport in in, um, in a slightly different way. I think we need to be braver and you know not worried about um, making a mistake um, mm. and being a bit more experimental. Fail if you're going to, but fail fast. Try again. Um, it, you know is, and I think maybe to, to the earlier part of your question, the sort of um, fragmented nature of, of racing probably does make people um, innovate less. Mm. Um, one thing about British cycling um, and also football is that when you have those sporting stories, a, a big part of the way that the fans and the media interact is through particular people at the heart of that sport. You know, it was Bradley Wiggins and it was Chris Froome. It's been Mark Cavendish for a long time cycling. Uh, football, can name any amount um, of players. With racing, um, do you think that we're, we're getting there um, in terms of having people to sell the sport, you know, jockeys and, and trainers in particular? And where do you think um, we should go next with it? Because we see a lot more of that promotion, um, but do you think it's further to go? Absolutely. The, um, I, I mean, I've, I've heard somebody recently say, you know, these are the stars of our sport, and uh, it's a, a team of jockey and horse, and 50% of that team can't talk. You know, so we, <laughs> the general public, um, they want they want the stars of our sport, and I, I do think we've come a long way. Certainly from you know 20 years ago when I was first involved um, but there is always further to go in terms of um, you know making sure that we're presenting those stars and showcasing their talents so they can capture the imagination not just of viewers but people who could possibly consider that as a future career you know we know that the amount of young women who have been inspired by Rachel Blackmore and Holly Doyle and we need more of that, um, just you know, to, because they're the stories that cut through to get potential future racing fans. Um, actually, you've said this already, but um, you can't bet in racing this job. But are you are you better generally? Um, and if so, you know, how did you get into it? When, when's your first bet? And. So when I was doing my A-levels, one of my friends that I did my A-levels with, his dad was um, a pitch bookmaker, Wormsley oh. Brothers. I don't know whether any of your um, 
Customers will remember the Warner I, Brothers. I am absolutely certain <laughs> of any people viewer will know Warner so, Brothers. One of them will. So they um, they had pitches. That their regular pitch was at Bellevue Dogs, um, but they had pitches at um, Chester, York, Cheltenham in what is now the best mate enclosure, Utoxeter. Um, and you know they, they would recruit us as runners that mm. we would um, you know go and work for them in the summer mm. holidays and um, before you know before everything was digitized um, and and it was a brilliant introduction a brilliant sort of grounding in terms of not just racing but just a different world and a different language um, so um, you know I, it was probably before betting on other sports really began to grow. Uh, well, it was definitely before betting on other sports began to grow. But that, that was my, my introduction. And um, Andy, so uh, sadly, both um, senior Wormsleys have passed away now. And Andy, um, who, Wormsley Junior, um, has emigrated to New Zealand. So, um, um, but, you know, I, I will... I'll often go in the ring and see if um, see if I can see any of the people I used to know in there. Um, the rings are so close to the heart for just everybody watching this. Um, what do you think, if anything, um, BHA can do to to support on course bookmakers because they've been for a hell of a time Absolutely. in the past three years? I mean, it's such a difficult one, isn't it? That um, clearly, you know, I. I, I um, forgot my purse the other day when I was coming into London and managed to sort of survive for three days down here with just my phone paying for things. <laughs> and and you you can see the massive impact that that has had on the ring. Um, and um, the, the pandemic um, and starting price going going outside the ring. I was still working in cycling at the time, and but watching with interest from from a distance. Um, and it is a, a really difficult challenge. It's you know, it's society and time is sort of moving on. And how do we protect the best of that, um, uh, but also make sure that their business model can adapt to to still be relevant? Because I think it would be really sad. Uh, and you know, part of the um, theatre and enjoyment of a day's racing for me. Indeed, I think it's a good point upon which to end uh, upon, oh, sorry, give us a bit of space. I think that's a great point to end what's been a fascinating interview. Thank you very much for your time, Julie Harrington. Thank you.